This is a spoiler warning. We are going to spoil the episodes discussed in the show. It's also a free-flowing discussion. We're going to spoil pretty much most of the show aired to date. Uh, we'll do our best not to spoil any of the big finish range other than the episode that's discussed, but you are warned. Problem is, Perry, we are faced with a conundrum wrapped up in a dilemma. Hello and welcome to The Twin Dilemma, a Doctor Who fan podcast. In each episode, watch one new Who and one classic and tell you indisputably, undoubtedly, undeniably, which is best. Those are the twins, that's the lemma, and I'm your co-host, Edward Grove. And I am Fenric Lamar. And today's theme is contaminated. I'm already feeling it. That's right, we're, we're being infected by higher quality podcasts. Are we? I don't think that'll ever happen. I think that we're immune from that particular <laughs> infection. Yeah, uh, I think we're you, we are safe. You guys are safe from that. Yeah. Don't worry about our quality ever going up. Yeah, we've got a quality condom on. <laughs> but really, that means we're exploring stories from Doctor Who that involve the Doctor himself or various other characters being infected, infiltrated, or otherwise perhaps literally being contaminated by various alien forces and we'll start it off with our classic episode this week the caves of androzani you know if we could just sit down and talk about this little misunderstanding in a civilized manner my young friend here has been complaining of pains in her legs you can see for yourself she's suffering from some sort of urticaria silence come to that i don't feel too well myself Written by Robert Holmes, this epic adventure finds the fifth doctor stuck in the toxic mire of Androzani Minor, caught in the middle of a bitter political rivalry, and faced with the very real possibility that neither he nor his companion will make it out alive. All right, so Fenric Lamar, what do you think of the caves of Androzazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazazaz
throughout their era in that final episode. This one, it's like, let's do everything the opposite. <laughs> Instead of him being like a little whiny bitch, he is incredibly active in this story. What's funny, because it's almost like they kind of tip their hat to who he actually was in parts one and two. It's like, all right, parts one and two, he's basically going to do nothing and get captured. And then suddenly parts three and four, like a big swinging pendulum dick, he's going to come back at you and have, you know, some of the strongest scenes he'll ever have on camera. The uh, part three cliffhanger, when he's about to crash a spaceship into Androzani Minor just for the chance that maybe he'll survive and for the chance that maybe he'll be able to help this girl. One of my favorite Fifth Doctor scenes. Now my ship hands in the end over here. Why? Because I'll kill you if you don't. Not a very persuasive argument actually stops because I'm going to die soon anyway. Unless of course I get into a count of three. Unless of course I can find the antidote. I owe it to my friend to try because I got her into this. So you see, I'm not going to let you stop me now. It's hard to think of a Fifth Doctor moment that's actually better than that. Because that's a Fifth Doctor moment where you do actually feel something. And there aren't very many Fifth Doctor moments that I think I enjoy in a way that's, uh, there's really only a handful. There are a few, but that you actually feel emotional investment in. And that's definitely one of them. He doesn't make you feel anything. He doesn't uh, give you a little bit of rise. I can't say so. He doesn't so. get the blood flowing. I mean, he'll uh, he'll intrigue me. He doesn't uh, engorge you? No, intrigue, but not engorge. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's, sure. He's more of like a chummy, fun doctor and like, oh, I like that idea or that's a fun scene or something like that. But uh, it's not like a, say the 10th doctor where it's a bunch of shit where it's like, I'm going to cry during this scene <laughs> or the, the fourth doctor where it really makes you laugh viscerally or something like that. A little, a little, uh, slight aloof vibe to a lot of the fifth doctors run. He occasionally gets, you know, one of those kind of really solid doctor lines. Like my favorite line in this story is when he finally explains to us what the deal is with the celery. Doctor, why do you wear a stick of celery in your lapel? Does it offend you? No, I'm just curious. Certain portion. I'm allergic to certain gases in the praxis range of the spectrum. Well, h- how does the celery help? If the gas is present, the celery turns purple. And, and then what do you do? I eat the celery. If nothing else, I'm sure it's good for my teeth. It is nice that it's there, isn't it? Just to finally be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Because <laughs> it would be odd to have, of all things, just some vegetation on the doctor forever and have it go unexplained. Yeah, I mean, I had always just assumed that it was just a joke, like how most people wear a flower. But he's like, what about a different plant? Because he's the doctor and he's weird. He's crazy. <laughs> he's a crazy guy. He's a wild and crazy guy. There are uh, a couple things about the first part. Because I do think uh, in terms of the, the doctor's role in parts one and two, he is in sort of standard uh, fifth doctor gear, we'll say, where it's like, we want to kidnap me. All right. And then uh, we're in peril. Sure, replace me with robots. That'll fix it. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's not solving problems. But what it's really got going for it, parts one and two are directed really, really well. I feel like this whole story is di- uh, directed very dynamic in a, a lot of ways that uh, classic, you know, just never was. I don't know if it was just like the budget was higher, but they have close-ups. Yeah. <laughs> There's no close-ups in classic Doctor Who. You know, I honestly don't think it was the budget because when you really look at the production design, there's some stuff that looks like shit in this story. I really think it was the actual direction. I think his name was Graham Harper. It is. Yeah, the choices he makes in that very beginning where it's not that the exterior is any better of a fucking quarry than they've used <laughs> any other time, but the way he uses some of those wides and you stay on like a lot of wide shots. You don't go right into these sort of 
full shots and mediums and stuff, you stick on these series of wides, it looks like Star Wars or something, you know? It actually looks like an alien world. Yeah, I know what you mean. When they first get out of the TARDIS, they have like a really long conversation, but we're still, you know, 200 paces away from them. It's really interesting. And I think that really did add something cinematic to it. Even though what you're looking at it really doesn't look better than something that was in an adjacent story. And, uh, you know, this is a nice little bridge into him. As much as I think he's uh, one of the better examples of a, a villain like this, I'm not a big fan of the production design surrounding Shara's Jack. Shara's Jack. When the mud burst caught me without warning, how he must have gloated. But I tricked him. I reached one of the baking chambers and I survived. So what do you think of Shara's uh, Jack overall? Because I, I guess we're on the same page. He looks pretty, pretty uh, like a, a weird looking gimp. He's a weird looking gimp. Also, I've always been kind of disappointed in uh, what he looks like when you finally see him without the mask on. He's not quite uggo enough. That honestly, that is a huge complaint that I have because, okay, Doctor Who has hideous creatures all the time and they sell it up. I mean, they have reaction shots and stuff like he should be a baleful apparition of an uga <laughs> yeah definitely and one episode later perry's gonna get pseudo molested by a giant slug monster <laughs> you know what i mean like his his face needs to be phantom of the opera times 10 as to his actual character i think he definitely falls into that trope of you know just lonely villain who wants to to rape just looking to rape he just wants to rape you must stay here now Stay? For how long? It will make you comfortable. And after a few years, you'll be quite content living here with me. Quite content. But uh, on the other hand, like, I think he's one of the better examples of that. Mm. Because he, beyond that, there's, there's, you know, they actually make you feel a little bit for his loneliness. Uh, despite the fact that he goes about, you know, trying to get a girlfriend in the worst possible ways. Do you really feel for his loneliness despite his, his molestation? I, I do. I, I think that... Uh, you're, you're in general just very sympathetic towards uh, <laughs> perpetuators of uh, sexual assault. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, it, it takes one to know one. <laughs> Huge uh, alleged Brian Singer fan. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. I'm just saying this. They're 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 uh, they're racking up on his his tab, <laughs> allegedly. But there's a, a shit ton of characters in this more than just Sharzak, even though he's probably the most memorable one. Absolutely, he's got the most memorable name. You know, I still remember his name years after watching this one. I do too. Although I uh, I get like one letter wrong a lot. Which one is it? The Z. Or the what H. You, what do you H. say, like Char? I go like Scaras. Scaras, Jack? Yeah, I like transpose some of those. But uh, the the Jack or whatever. I guess the Jack, I kind of do Jack or Jack. But I, I, I'm in the ballpark all the time. <laughs> Definitely. Gimp guy. Gimp guy. But there's also uh, Morgus. Yes, Morgus. Definitely memorable. Name not memorable. In, uh, in my opinion, definitely a totally shit performance. Well, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> let, let, let's get into the nitty gritty of that because I want to know whose decision it was for him to do literal asides. Yeah, so uh, I hate those moments more than anything in life. <laughs> but there's going to be a nice, 
fat piece of trivia Ooh. about it. So you're going to find out, mister. Juicy or uh, what? What I, I I keep thinking it's juicy, but it's that's juicy, not it. It's juicy. It is saucy. Saucy. It's fat. It's coated in semen. Oh, that's my favorite kind of sauce. Uh, but yeah, he's also, he's got the one of the world's worst ponytails. It's pretty bad. And that's a competition with a, a deep bench. Also, the world's worst elevator. <laughs> that door goes so slow. It's also one of the world's worst shots of somebody falling in an elevator. <laughs> I mean, that's another one of those things that you could pull a million things out of from the history of film. And there's some bad ones. I know, but I mean, his assassination of the president looks uh, faker than the Zapruder film. Am I right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> yeah. Not really. Time has gone by. <laughs> So we touched on it a little bit. This is the fifth Doctor's final story. Uh, and I personally, it's my favorite way that the Doctor actually dies. That's one of the main selling points of a regeneration story to me. I love the idea that he just steps in an egg at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> it's an egg. Oh, my God. This egg obsession is just life ruining for you. Uh, literally for the fifth Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's just Maybe slowly Maybe this is where dying. it started. That must be, you yeah. know. It's a, it's literally like written on his inner corpse. <laughs> but uh, what do you think of the actual regeneration scene? Well, I feel like we're probably going to be of uh, the same mind here in that the death, his big heroic act is great. It's, uh, it's so unlike the fifth doctor and it's weird for like his last act to be unlike the fifth doctor and also totally awesome. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, definitely. Because uh, you sort of want that moment to be like the doctor that preceded it but fuck that it's great it's (laughs) it's gotta be the highlight of the episode right yeah probably it's so powerful that end of uh episode three and rushing down they keep the energy up all the way through part four it's really impressive yeah with the 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 mud tides are like bursting it's such a stupid name (laughs) it's like a fucking dessert you'd buy at applebee's or something (laughs) y'all want a chocolate mud burst no it's what happens after you eat at applebee's (laughs) Uh, cheap but funny but then yeah i think the the regeneration scene itself is uh one of the goofier and probably worst in the the whole show are you talking about like the the head zooming around or are you talking about uh just <laughs> literally everything from when he starts regenerating i think uh it starts off with uh he says you know i might regenerate i don't know Feels different this time. There's no real reason that one should feel different. They kind of big finish is a good job later of giving you for a reason for Definitely. it to feel different. At that moment, it's like why? <laughs> it's not even the season finale. <laughs> They're trying to see. Yeah, that's a good point. They are trying to sell like, what if he didn't regenerate? But yeah, there's a whole other it's episode not even next the week. Season finale, and you're gonna do that. Like at least make it. You know, the showrunners going away or something. <laughs> and then. Uh, yeah, really goofy ass shit with the companions. And they they made the decision to actually have them shoot new footage, so it's they're talking to the doctor in a bizarre way, and they they hang Adric's death over him right there at the end, and then throughout the scene, uh, they're hanging something else over him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's as tit heavy as the regeneration <laughs> scene has been yet. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, I guess uh, when when Jodie Whittaker dies. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, and then the master thing, real campy, real campy master moment. 
And then I, I've never liked the way Colin Baker uh, pops up. Doctor? You're expecting someone else? I, I, I... That's three eyes in one breath. Makes you sound a rather egotistical young lady. I, I got to disagree with you there. I like that, uh, you know, they tell you exactly who the sixth doctor is going to be. And Colin Baker nails it in that moment. It's in one line. Change, my dear. And it seems not a moment too soon. I don't mind that aspect of it. I do mind the fact that if the sixth doctor's actual regeneration is about anything in the show, it's really putting a foot in uh, post-regeneration amnesia. And so I don't like the inconsistency of, boom, clarity, followed up by, you know what, never mind, let me choke you a bit. <laughs> well, I've always, I understand what you're saying. I've always taken uh, post-regeneration trauma to be sort of a thing like this new guy pops up and he's fully aware, but the confusion sets in really quickly. I know what you mean. It's depicted in waves, and I think the logical reason for that is they want to do what you're saying. They want to give you a taste of the real doctor at the end of the one story, but then the next story they want to have the post-regeneration narrative. There's a part of me that doesn't want to abide that. You know what I mean? Because it's it's so uh, ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't like the regeneration itself, but the death is beautiful. Great death. I love death. Love just watching Peter Davison die. <laughs> I do it on repeat. Yeah, death fool for Peter Davison 2018. <laughs> <laughs> He's not that old, right? He's probably in his late 60s. Sounds like he smokes, though. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. And he's English. I just I like bald. to imagine that takes a few years off your life, even though I think they have better quality of living and uh, life expectancy than we do. Yeah, but their teeth are gross. Ooh, uh, take that. Now that I've wished an early death on the English, it's time for some trivia. This script had the rather bland working title, Chain Reaction. What does that mean? That's what, right. what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, uh, pretty unremarkable. Yeah, but nothing chain reacts in this story. Uh, I mean, there is sort of, but it's uh, only in the way that every properly constructed story has <laughs> elements of a chain reaction. Sure. This story, as likely discussed, is almost universally hailed as one of Doctor Who's all-time best. In fact, it's not only a fan favorite, but Peter Davison enjoyed it as well, and was quoted as saying that had there been more scripts like this, he might have considered staying on the show for a fourth season. Well... Sucks that uh, you just get cucked over and over again in all your scripts. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how serious he really was about that, though, because I've heard when they shot The Five Doctors, he and uh, Pat Troughton kind of talked with each other about like how long to stay on the show and that he sort of got advice from him not to stay on too long. And he was only three years as well, right? Yeah, so I kind of think he had that number in his head. As mentioned earlier, this story explains the stock of celery adhered to the fifth doctor's lapel. The reason for this explanation is actually that Peter Davison personally requested one be included, and Eric Sayward worked it into the script. That sounds to me like Peter Davison didn't like the celery on his jacket. You know, he's just like, well, we got to put a line in here somewhere so I'm not just a goofy asshole for three years. My initial thought was, who likes the celery on the jacket? <laughs> I don't dislike it, but I would dislike it if there wasn't an answer for it. Yeah, I think it's, it's charming since there's a reason for it to be there eventually. I mean, it reminds me of the cat lapel on six. I've never liked the cat lapel. Yeah, I don't like the cat thing on six. Did oh. they ever give a reason for the cat thing? Uh, it's just that six is very much like a cat. He only likes himself. He's gay. He's gay. 
like all cats. While to date, no other story has returned to Androzani Minor, the Doctor would find himself on Androzani Major in the Christmas special, The Doctor, The Widow, and The Wardrobe. Quick review of that episode. Fucking sucks. I hate it. <laughs> I hate that episode with, my, with every bone of my body. Quick uh, behind-the-scenes bonus fact. We tried very much to do an Androzani-themed <laughs> There's no episode, other Androzani stories. But we couldn't find a goddamn thing to do for the bonus. Yeah, there's just the two. If uh, if someone had even written some decent Androzani fan fiction. <laughs> there's got to be some of that somewhere. Yeah, We, we didn't, didn't go to fanfic.com. We're not quite that pathetic. <laughs> I mean, we are. We're close. We won't admit it. Yeah. This story was written by Doctor Who veteran Robert Holmes, who hadn't written for the show in six years at the time this came out. When in his office, you may have noticed Morgus breaking the fourth wall and delivering his soliloquies directly to the camera. I did notice that because he has to actually turn to do so. Yeah, quite uh, violently as well. Yeah. This was due to him misunderstanding the stage directions. However, Graham Harper claims he liked the effect and kept them in. I don't understand this trivia at all. I'm guessing that the stage directions said something like, Aside, And so he just took it as like a Shakespearean aside. Yeah. And nobody corrected him. Yes. And supposedly it was because uh, the director liked it. I find that hard to believe. I feel like they ran out of tape or time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. It looks like shit. It does. I absolutely hate it. (laughs) I hate his performance anyway. And I think uh, it pile drives it into the goddamn ground. (laughs) Finally, a nice little... Light bonus fact about the doctor's death. During the regeneration scene, Colin Baker wore a special pair of fifth doctor trousers modified for his larger frame, a.k.a. dat plump rump. (laughs) If this wasn't interesting enough, Davison would go on to wear these same modified trousers some 23 years later in the special minisode Time Crash. Oh, so he ended up uh, becoming just as brute. His his rump was plumpified. (laughs) Due to the the horrors of time. Should have been drinking that carrot juice. Carrot juice. Carrot juice, carrot juice. Now we'll move on to our new Who story this week. The Waters of Mars. And that's how you create history. What do you mean? Imagine it, Adelaide. If you began a journey that takes the human race all the way out to the stars, it begins with you. And then your granddaughter, you inspire her. So that in 30 years, Susie Fontana Brooke is the pilot of the first lightspeed ship to Proxima Centauri. When a strange infection starts to spread in the waters of Bowie Base 1, humanity's first Martian colony, the 10th Doctor will have to decide whether to stay and help the doomed crew or run away to preserve the laws of time. Edward, what do you think of the waters of Mars? I adore the waters of Mars. What do you think of the the Marsy, Marsy, Marshy, Marsh, Martyrs, Mars, Waters, Mars, Bars, Waters? At some point, I'll get to speak. (laughs) Not if I just keep mashing syllables together. I'm sure that's true. I also, uh, I I love this story. It's great. It is a a real good fucking time, isn't it? It, uh, Yeah, I I love fucking during this story. Yeah, it's great for fucking. You just put this on, panties drop like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, I always like to point out that uh, once they're ready to go, you know, they've got the waters of Mars down below. Nice. 
I like to point out, like, uh, people think that the show is only in HD, starting with Matt Smith, but uh, it's actually in HD. Shoot him a wink. <laughs> I like that. Uh, does it stand for huge dick? It does. It does stand for. No, it's a high definition. That David Tennant dong. We haven't talked about it in so long. It feels like it's been months. I have a note about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd but love I, to hear. I'm going to wait. No, because okay. it'll be we'll, saucy. We'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> saucy dong. So uh, one thing I always forget about this. It's such an incredibly Russell T. Davies episode, but in my head, this is uh, written by Phil Ford. I forget this is actually written by Russell T. Davies and Phil Ford. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, it feels, uh, they, they literally make a reference to it. It feels like a sequel to The Fires of Pompeii. Absolutely. Thematically. Yeah. Imagine you found yourself somewhere. I don't know, Pompeii. Imagine you were in Pompeii. What the hell's that got to do with it? you tried to save them but in doing so you make it happen and it's basically what if the doctor was put into that same situation again but made the wrong choice wrong choice interesting question let's hop to it so the wrong choice being to intervene in time right Mm -hmm. and to do so in a very dramatic way so i want to ask you hypothetical here is there a way to look at things and to say Adelaide Brooks is totally wrong. Everything he did worked out completely. She shot herself unnecessarily. Time Lord Victorious is right. He does win. I would say definitely because, uh, you know, they, they do that last website flash. By the way, quick tangent, fucking hate those website flashes. Don't hold up very well. Do no, they, they do not. <laughs> uh, I understand why they're there. Like, we yeah, to- it's like, I also feel like, again, it's a. Uh, I just, Russell T. Davies did not have a mind for what was going to age well. Or maybe he knew and just did not give a shit. That's very it, much I think it's attitude. the latter, yeah. Uh, but that's one of those things where it's like, even I feel like two, three years later, right away, I was like, ooh, agent bad. Is this agent really bad? I mean, I remember hating it the first time I watched it. I I feel somewhat that way, but I think it was much worse like a year or two later. But anyway, stepping back, mm-hmm. uh, we get that last website flash and it says, you know, she died on earth. Uh, grandmother's legacy intact yeah. or whatever <laughs> and it's like there's no indication that her killing herself is yeah. still the reason why uh her granddaughter wanted to go into space i also love the idea that her fucking grandma blowing your brains out in the foyer was as <laughs> inspirational <laughs> to going into space or also that her grandma dying in a horrible space accident made her go to space as well I mean, that one makes more sense because, you know, the doctor's like somewhere inside. She wanted to go out and find you. And But it's a horrible space accident. She's dead. Well, at least that one, it was like a mystery. You know, for forever, humanity doesn't know what happened to Bowie Base 1, well, which is kind of... I think it was that they, they didn't know what happened is and what caused the horrible space accident. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, you'd want to go out and try and find the answer. But of course, she goes straight past Mars and goes to, I think they say Alpha Centauri or something. I've always found uh, in this episode, all the things related to what motivates uh, human space travel to be totally silly. Because there's one other, and this is the, uh, the somewhat famous Dalek appearance in the story. A young Adelaide during a... Not the Dalek invasion of Earth, but a Dalek invasion of Earth. <laughs> One of several. Uh, sees a Dalek flying overhead. I saw it, Doctor. And it saw me. So a couple inscrutable things happen here, very quickly, all at once, arguably. For some reason, the Dalek doesn't kill her. Weird. 
Well, they do explain it that, uh, it, you know, it couldn't kill her for the same reason that the doctor couldn't save her. Wait, what? She has to die on Mars. But at that point in history, why would that be the case? Because the the Daleks sees her. They say this. The Daleks, the doctor basically says. You wanted all your life while that Dalek spared you. I think it knew. Your death is fixed in time forever. Oh, yeah. But I guess it's because the Daleks have time travel, too. Yeah. So I guess I can understand that. They've become uh, sort of like Time Lords in that they have those uh, like time-related, those temporal senses. To me, it uh, it's less justified because the Daleks clearly aren't as careful about fucking with time. Yeah, why did they care? <laughs> yeah, they're like, In oh, fact, can't fuck with humanity's progress. <laughs> yeah, humans not going to space sounds great to them. Um, but then uh, the other inscrutable thing to me is the idea that her staring up at a horrifying space monster <laughs> in a situation where they're all almost killed inspires her to become a, an astronaut. Yeah, that is, a, that is a little silly. I kind of feel like, you know, we still haven't heard whether or not this is true, but if it is true that... I the, wanted to bring this up. Yeah, the Terry Nation estate has it in their contracts or whatever that they have to have the Daleks once a year. This is proof of that, you know? I've always felt like this was the best argument for that this one and then there's also that like scene i think it's in the name of the doctor where it just starts with him like walking towards a dying dalek for no reason yeah and uh, i suppose the uh the little bit of daleks in um the pilot the pilot yeah so it's probably true (sighs) it's hard to like it's hard to not believe in it even though there's not actual evidence right but let's move on to things that we like about this story, because it is a, a fantastic story. Yeah, and honestly, as much as I'm prone to quibble about things like that, when I think about this story and when I watch it, I am just filled with a fucking joy. <laughs> it's such a great, uh, such a fun time. All of the cast members are great. Really good cast. Adelaide Brooke uh, is sort of the, what's the word? Vagina. The vagina. <laughs> she is the waters of mars she's the the boss vagina she's boss vagina you know she's she's like the temporary companion for this episode yeah she is and uh she's playing that you know space boss woman which Mm -hmm. that character is in doctor who a lot but i like that especially at the beginning of the episode they show a lot of moments of her just being like a good fun human that you would also like as well yeah and i've always felt like because you're right you see the kind of template that she fills in in a lot of different stories but i thought she sort of does two components of it really well. Both kind of components of that character, right? The human side, she brings a more, as you said, fun and more dynamic range to the human side of that character. And then I think the brassy boss side, she does, a, again, there's more range there. She seems like the kind of boss who is believably tough and no nonsense, but also like you wouldn't mind having her as your boss. There's one moment in particular that uh, this is a, such a Russell T. Davies thing to have in the story, and it's completely gone once Stephen Moffat took over, <laughs> is these little mysteries about characters. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. There's another character named Ed. I believe he's the, the security officer, and he just says this right before he dies. You never could forgive me. Little moments like that where it's just like, oh, these characters have a life that isn't told to us in an expository <laughs> line. Those are great. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is a really good point, actually. That's really isolating one of the major differences in how 
Russell T. Davies era characters were shaped versus uh, Stephen Moffat characters where they're kind of more like, if they're there at all, they're kind of crammed down your throat. But we should talk about The Flood, the main pro- uh, main protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got a fucked up perspective on this story. <laughs> I really like uh, when the base blows up. That's my favorite part. Uh, no, they're the main antagonists. And you know, I've watched this episode a lot. I watch it on repeat a lot. I had never put it together before that they're trying to give those that race a name. I uh, when you said the flood, I thought you were talking about the scene where they were invading the base. I didn't realize they had a name. Yeah, well, there's like two moments in particular. Uh, one is you know the do- uh, the doctor says like uh, first the filters are gone and then the flood, and uh-huh. I've always just taken taken that as being like a him being hyperbolic, you know. Yeah, I took it to be a sort of. Uh, sort of pseudo-biblical reference reference <laughs> as a sort of uh we talk good on this podcast <laughs> i don't know why i went to like a jamaica accent <laughs> because just, they talk good you're extremely racist <laughs> <laughs> well i'm also like really high right now <laughs> mon mon but then the other one they're they're just sort of talking about heat they use water so we can use heat what's against the ice warriors what's against the flood and wow. I was like, oh, that's a race. I didn't get that at all. I never got that before. I love them. But in my mind, they were always in the sort of midnight category of unnamed forces. Yeah, they don't need a name. Yeah. They really don't because they are left so mysterious. Yeah. But uh, uh, I, I'm glad to know that they have one and it's ripped off from Halo. <laughs> <laughs> that is the, the first thing I could think of. Uh, one thing I do want to say about them is honestly amazes me that I like them so much because I fucking hate the way that they look. Oh, that, you know, like cracked face. I totally get that, but I like it. And I also think, um, I think what carries it is it's directed super duper well. The very first sort of contamination scene, I would put up there as one of the best directed moments in all of New Who. When it's uh, Andy like standing in the background and shaking, is that what you're talking about? That is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that is, it's so fucking spooky. It's like, it was such a bold choice to shoot it like that and of course classic Russell T. Davies they just give you a little moment to think that they're such nice people (laughs) and then he slaughters the guy in this horrific way in the background where he's just quivering and you can kind of just barely hear the water I also always think it's funny the like second infection is uh, like the doctor and Adelaide walking in on like one guy like giving the other one like a weird water blowjob (laughs) he's like on his knees and the other one's like get your fucking head over here yeah and he's like, you love it, bitch. And he's like, I love it, bitch. <laughs> the waters of your mouth. <laughs> so I think any discussion of this story would be absolutely remiss if we didn't talk about arguably the most iconic moment from it, the Time Lord Victorious. For a long time now, I thought I was just a survivor, but I'm not. I'm the winner. That's who I am. Time Lord Victorious. It's really cool. I, I love that they chose to do something very untenth doctor towards the end of his life. I just wish that it continued on into the next episode. Well, I see, I think it actually is is very tenth doctor. I think it does carry on into the next episode, but it just it carries on in that it's sort of the consequences of it. You're seeing the rise and then the fall. Like this is the apex of the uh, the Time Lord Victorious story. Like, uh, 
his vanity can really only go so far. And you see the feathers of it continuing. Uh, but I mean, literally all that's left for him to to go through is to die, basically. To fucking die. Well, yeah, because to me it's like 10 is very much about like he get, he brings comfort to people. And the idea of actually seeing him as like a scary force, I don't, there's not really another moment where he's like that to non-super evil people. Well, no, see, I disagree. And I think that's sort of the dichotomy of Ten. I think uh, all the doctors have some element of dichotomy that's really intriguing, right? If you think about Ten and who he is to Rose, that's really beautiful and sweet. And you think about Ten and who he is to Jack, it's sort of complicated and weird. Yeah, I suppose know? so. And I, I think part of that has to do with the fact that you know, we talk about Ten as being one of the more human doctors, right? And I think one of the human traits, because he has several very human traits, but the one that Ten really embodies the most is this human uh, vanity. And that comes out in some ways for an absolute lust for life that we see in his final moments of literally not wanting to go. Uh, but it also means that he's the doctor who really felt like he could look at every other Time Lord dying and say that means he fucking won the game of being a Time Lord, you know, yeah. in, in his darkest moment. And I think it's represented here in a really, uh, I mean, I think it gives you goosebumps. It's a really it beautiful, really powerful moment. I would love uh, for Matt Smith to just point it out to him at some point in Day of the Doctor. Yeah. You know, he's like, 1.2 billion kids died. And he's like, yeah, but you're going to be the one who's like, fuck them, I won. Yeah, I mean, that would be the best low blow. It should be like a, a multi-doctor special where it's like they all get drunk and it gets real ugly. Honestly, that'd be great. Yeah. It'd be like that scene in Avengers 2 where they're just having a party. <laughs> yeah. I want to see that. Big Finish is going to be our only possible chance for that. And with the discussion of Waters of Mars completed, here's some trivia. This was the first Doctor Who special not produced for a specific holiday. Originally, it was conceived as a Christmas special with the working title Red Christmas. Some elements from this draft still exist, such as the ending snowscape and the crew getting ready for Christmas dinner. As it is still a bit Christmassy. It's like the darkest Christmas special ever. And I think when he drops her off, isn't it uh, December sometime? I don't remember if they say exactly. Oh, well, they must do because they say it's the same day. And, yeah. you know, they keep telling us what that day is. I don't remember what it is. It's 2059. I remember yeah. the year. I think it's like shortly before Christmas. It might be Christmas Eve. You know, I always thought of, I remember going through that year when it was the specials. And first there was, a, you know, the Christmas special. And then there was the Easter special. And then there was this. And uh, it came out, if I'm not uh, too far off, somewhere around November. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, this must be the Thanksgiving <laughs> yeah. special. They love that in the UK. They're big on the Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, 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 and I held on to that belief for a long time before I realized I was a moron. <laughs> this episode includes a tribute to 70s producer Barry Letts, who had died just weeks before broadcast. Oh. So they got like his name in the open or the ending credits. Russell T. Davies' first choice for Adelaide was famous actress Helen Mirren. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that seems ambitious. It sounds like it was just a scheduling issue, or at least that's what Helen Mirren <laughs> told him. Uh, I can sort of see that reflected in the person that he got, and she does a great job. Yeah, and she's good. Helen she, Mirren would have been fucking nuts. This is the only episode of the series, other than Christmas specials, to be broadcast on a Sunday. Uh, that's the most boring piece of trivia I've ever heard in my life. I thought that was really interesting, that there, I, there's I never been a weird situation where it came out on a Sunday. What would the situation be? I don't know. 
uh, scheduling issues or something? Why would they push it to a Sunday? Quick, pick the worst time to air the show. <laughs> Maybe uh, they had an episode that was very religious <laughs> in themes. Oh, yeah, it's like the famous God is dead episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> the Satan pit. <laughs> In case it wasn't obvious, yes, Bowie Base One is named after David Bowie. It um it it was obvious. Yeah, it is uh quite obvious. It's it's one of the first words in, in the episode. Story, yeah. you know, they're just like Bowie, <laughs> Red Planet. It's Bowie. Yeah, that's what Russell D. Davies sounds like. <laughs> Guys, now we're gonna go to Mars, and you're gonna be Bowie there. <laughs> I'm picturing him as an American uh, fat like. Uh, perma nerd like living in his mom's like basement nothing like Russell T. Davies no he sounds exactly like Russell T. Davies mom bring me my Tostitos well I mean now it sounds like Russell T. Davies <laughs> I love cock there you go you're really tuning in and now that we've discussed both of our episodes it's time for the dilemma now you have got to make a choice Edward Grove, which episode would you like to champion? You know, I think we've actually got two very good stories this week, but the superior story, in my estimation, is The Waters of Mars. Okay, interesting, interesting. I agree, we do have two really good stories, but uh, I disagree and say that The Caves of Androzani is, in fact, better. No coin flip unheard of on this podcast. <laughs> At least in a while. Yeah, it's it been fucking coin palooza. And it's been really bad coin flips. Yeah, for one of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been great. <laughs> okay, so The Caves of Androzani, perfect ending to a doctor. I think it's a fantastic episode. I think the story is great. Uh, I think that there are obvious problems of it suffering from its own ambition, I think uh, there is sort of this sense of a convolution and too many characters, but I think that that comes as a side effect of the episode being smarter than your your usual uh, classic who. Yeah, it dips into politics, which is on occasion boring. <laughs> uh, I remember the first time watching it being kind of bored by Morgus. Now I'm actually like, I think it just is his performance. It's <laughs> it's a treat to watch. Uh, okay, uh, uh, I'll, I'll wait. Keep going. Okay. But I'll just say treat's not the word I'd use. Oh no, it's so much fun. <laughs> when he turns to the camera, you just can't help but laugh. Uh, yeah, but while I think that the, the flaws in my episode are more obvious than they would be in, say, uh, Waters of Mars... The, the good stuff that comes with it just totally makes up for it and uh, makes for a better overall episode than Waters of Mars. Case of Androzani, first of all, I just want to agree. Very good story. It's got a lot going for it. I win. Well, there's where we disagree. <laughs> so we are both in agreement of the fact that it is, it is overrated, right? To some degree. We just, to uh, some degree, yeah. We, we differ into how much we think it's overrated. I, I would say like... If you have to actually be technical about the word, uh -huh. then I agree with you. But it's not a term. It's not a phrase I would use for that episode. To me, I feel it's somewhat ludicrously overrated. I wouldn't even put it in my top three Fifth Doctor stories. That's insane to me. Insane. I think Earthshock is better. I think Enlightenment is definitely better. And I think you could probably pick Black Orchid as being better. I think you could pick uh, Modern Undead. Is being better, more innovative. Modern Undead. Yeah, that movie. That that movie. 
that episode's a fucking mess. Well, it's a mess, but it's a very captivating mess. It's fun. It's fun. And here's the thing, because you're talking about it having too much, right? Caves of Dandrazani having too much, and that's what uh, earns it demerits. I don't think that's true. I think the amount it has, it handles beautifully, because it would be so easy to look at this story and any other iteration, any other script, and say, you know what? These uh, fucking sort of mercenary gunrunner characters, what the hell are they doing in this story? But they're actually used really well. The way they tie into Morgus's plotline uh, is perfect. I mean, I remember the first couple times watching it, still not really getting who they were working for. Are they working for Jack or are they working I for Morgus? I definitely felt and... that way when they're their first couple scenes. I was like, here's some classic, classic who bullshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was yeah. like, these guys shouldn't be here. And then I really like the way they're feathered into the plot. Stotts is a very memorable character. Stotts is somewhat memorable. I think it's a bad performance. I like him. Uh, I especially like... uh, I got to get to my point. Okay, go ahead. But here's where you're on, because it's not about having too much stuff. It's about what they put in there is fucking boring. The politics is agonizingly boring. The scenes with Morgus, every time they cut away to Morgus, I just, I cut a vein a little bit deeper (laughs) in my wrist. I mean, it's so... First of all, the the asides, those damn asides... (laughs) And whatever drugs okay, you Graham can't Harper say, was on. You can't say uh, that uh, that scene is boring and then your next point be, look at how amazingly absurd this thing is that this guy is doing. I didn't say amazingly absurd. It's horrible. Oh, I know. It's 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 uh, irredeemable. But in that way, it's entertaining. If you want evidence, I will submit evidence to the court uh-huh. of the boredom of these scenes. <laughs> Here's a clip. They were merely ignorant handlers, Excellency. The stews of the city are full of such unemployed riffraff. Most of them unemployed, Trimorgus, because you have closed so many plants. It's caused great unrest. Easily settled. Those without valid employment cards will be shipped off to the eastern labor camps. Good luck trying to sort that out. Uh, You just heard Morgus talking about he's opening factories and closing factories and he's issuing employment cards and how the employment cards have turned out that now the new people he's employing will be working for... What the fuck is happening? (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, that is... Not only is it, like, transparently just padding, it's so fucking dull. And I want to compare this for a moment to a different story. Vengeance on Varos. Very, very similar in a lot of ways. Same kind of undercurrent story that has a lot of action. And then you cut back to uh, an antagonist with uh, sort of number-crunching politics happening. But those political scenes are actually much more interesting with a much more dull subject because they're simpler and because uh, one of the people in the scene is a, a weird tongue box. And it's a very simple hook. How many you know, units, How much? what's the price per unit of uh, Zaiton 7, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas what's happening in Caves of the Andrazani, is goddamn inscrutable. <laughs> I mean, okay, I, I will give you a, a half point for boringness. No, I, no, no, sir, a half point. Half point. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as boring as you're making it out to be. I don't, I don't, I, I understand what you're trying to say, that like, just like talking about business is not uh, very interesting. And yeah, there's definitely some padding because it's classic. There's too. a moment in this where there is a dramatic music cue where he talks about, uh, taking a a minute-long moment of silence. No, 
a 30 second moment of silence. No, I like that because that's that's a moment of like, l- just check out how much of a bastard this guy is. That's what it's supposed to be. In practice, it is boring as hell. And again, his performance is miserable the whole time. I think you're just uh, you're just annoyed by his ugly haircut. Well, his hair. Well, listen, if that was all, <laughs> I would tell you that was all because I do hate it. <laughs> but so Morgus, huge letdown, really bothers me. And then the other sort of an antagonist character, although he's a little bit more complicated of a role, Shara's Jack. I always get a little bit wrong. Yeah, I think it's Shara's. Shara's Jack. I really don't like him. I think he he chews the scenery for the entire story. I think he's a, a terrible over-the-top Shakespearean uh, villain. I think uh, it demonstrates just how much this story uh, takes itself too seriously. If I'm being honest, uh, before I get into why, I'm going to give you a point for antagonist. Although I've got two of them, uh, I don't think... Uh, and, and I actually think Shara's Jack is really memorable, and I think that he is... He is memorable. On, on the scale of... Uh, of you know, because so many classic episodes are just, here's the rapist, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you're talking about uh, John Pertwee, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, literally everyone who's played the doctor. It's weird. It's how crazy. They, literally yeah. every English man is a rapist. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> listeners from uh, the UK, hope you enjoy that joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think he is on the top of that scale. I think that they, they do actually do a decent job of showing uh, that he has like a backstory that got him here. I, I do actually feel sympathetic for him in that, in uh, some ways. It's hard to compare because in your episode, you know, it's not an outright villain. It's a, an it's like alien a force. force. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That I think there's only one scene where we even have dialogue with them. There's just yeah, the one yeah. where, uh, when, uh, um, Maggie's in the sick bay. Yeah. And she's just talking about earth and that, that is a, a really a great, great scene, moment. Though. And it's hard to say anything other than they are great, even though I, I, I actually think I would rather aesthetically have Sharis Jack. You are fucking kidding than, me. Than cracked face Maggie. You might be able to say that in a vacuum. Put it in any situation. <laughs> you're going to introduce somebody to the show and you're going to show him a villain. You're going to give him a, a mixed white gimp face. I, no, see, because I don't know, because they'll see him... Uh, I guess this isn't in a vacuum, but they'll see him in the context of like 80s uh, photography and they'll be like, okay, he fits that aesthetic. But now you're you're trying to show them an HD episode that like the, the space station looks great and their faces, they're just wearing these ugly I honestly, mouth masks. Even in the scenario you're proposing, I think they would say, that guy looks fucking horrible. I'm never going to watch this shitty latex fetish show that you're trying to force on me. I want to go doctor to doctor with you. Okay, I'm happy to make this comparison. They're actually very similar stories in that for like the first half of the story is sort of drifting along. Absolutely. And it's a rare thing for 10, but you're totally right. They have a very similar pattern in that way. Yeah. And then the second half of the story, they're fucking in command. They are Time Lord Victorious. Uh, fuck it. Peter Davison is a better Time Lord <laughs> Victorious. Uh <laughs> And I don't want to say that I don't love David Tennant just standing in a corner of a room looking sad, (laughs) you know, because he does a very good job of that. But that is 60% of what he does in this story. And I think compared to Peter Davison in this, where he's got two whole parts of just driving with a, a very clear objective 
And we didn't even talk about this. One of the main reasons that this episode is so beloved is, and admittedly, Big Finish is taken away from this, like chipped at it piece <laughs> yeah, by piece. Sort of horrifically. <laughs> yeah, is this idea that it's a girl he doesn't even know. It's a, a brand new companion who he just picked up in the episode previously, I the believe. The one right before, yeah. Yeah, Planet of Fire. Let's, let's uh, just write out of the gate, let's just say uh, Perry's worse than Perry Adelaide, is worse, yes. Or even no companion, if you want to uh, say well, that. Well, what about Perry's tits? <laughs> But so let's, uh, I, I agree with the premise of what you're saying in that these stories for the Doctor have a very similar overall arc, right? And that those two parallel arcs really make up essentially the cores of the stories, right? The Doctor goes on this journey that is at first kind of eluding and then has to really grab it and make this mad dash, right? Definitely. And here's why to me, while I can give uh, Kate Zanderzani a lot of credit for being a, a good and very good story and that has a lot of energy in that moment for the Doctor, why Waters of Mars is better in that specific aspect and a better overall story. Ultimately, Kate Zanderzani, yeah, you can give it some novelty points for the fact that he's sacrificing himself for somebody he doesn't know that much. How many Doctor Who stories involve the Doctor being willing to or going through with a self-sacrifice? He basically is willing to do a self-sacrifice in every story. <laughs> and we're up to, you know, roughly a dozen times now that he successfully sacrifices himself, uh, possibly more, depending on uh, what you want to call a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, I'm, I'm actually struggling to think of regenerations. Uh, other Legopolis. Than but he's not doing that to sacrifice himself for other people. I mean, he's going up on that tower to stop Just, the master. He sacrifices himself to save... We're not going to talk about the plot of Legopolis, but it's to save the universe. <laughs> but it's different when it's a, a single person. It's a, it's more personal. Yeah, it means much less. <laughs> it's like when you look at it from like a numbers game, you can't make it a numbers game. <laughs> uh, sure. All right. So Emotionally, on an emotional level, it's, uh, it's more intimate when it's uh, him literally doing it for one person. Yes, it is somewhat more intimate, but he does it all the time is the point. The self-sacrifice is in no way remotely novel and he's willing to do it constantly. Whereas when you look at the grand gesture that happens in the waters of Mars, it is not only tremendously novel for the series, it's really pushing the doctor to a space uh, that is uncomfortable to the point where someone around him kills himself. <laughs> moments later but even as an audience member it's really exhilarating to experience i cannot deny that it is uh, absolutely uh, amazing to watch um let me let me uh let me just uh, deviate really quick from that point uh <laughs> what about gadget gadget <laughs> i fucking hate that so here's the thing about gadget gadget right can't mount too much of a defense about gadget gadget to me i look at him and i'm like that's very much the kind of thing RTD would have done. And uh, if I'd been in the room with him, I would have been like, let's rein in Gadget Gadget. <laughs> but your story has its own Gadget Gadget that is probably even worse because it's more meaningless to the story. Can you find your Gadget Gadget? I'm going to guess you're referring to the weird like mud beast. That is correct. Yeah. I believe it is called a magma monster. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> and uh, unlike Gadget, who actually ends up being very critical to the story, the fucking magma monster is utterly meaningless. That's a really good point because you do actually watch it and uh, there's something about the way it moves and there's something about the fact that there's so many 
uh, forces in this story that are playing with each other that you think there's going to be a twist at some point where it turns out he's like a robot that's controlled by Shara's Yep. And instead, it's the fucking Slither all over again. Speaking of which, though, a good example. Listen, I just called back the Slither from the Dalek invasion of Earth. Come on. <laughs> I remembered its name, for Christ's sake. Good that job. thing's in like 30 seconds of the show. We didn't get a chance to talk to him, but to talk to him. <laughs> we because have he's fucking dead. We raised him from the dead. I don't uh, know who you're talking about, but I assume they're all dead. Uh, I actually really like the twist in uh, about uh, Salatine in my story about him being an android. That is a good twist. And uh, I don't think that there's a, a... There isn't really a twist in your story. Not really. There's there's a, a, a hard decision. I would say on first viewing, it's sort of hard to remember. The twist is probably that he goes there and they're all doomed to die. I suppose, yeah. But, but that's, that's, that's pretty that's early so on. That's so distant from me at this point. Yeah. I, I only think about this story from the perspective of the dozens of times that I've watched it. <laughs> um, but it's, it's not a twist-heavy story. I guess maybe Adelaide killing herself is a big twist. Yeah, I suppose. Um, but again, I honestly, I've seen Waters of Mars way too many times to even consider any moment. To t- I don't know if you're, that's what it is to you. Probably. But I feel like I could... I could literally recreate this script. I've watched this story so many times. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm not going to disagree um, that that's a very good twist. Uh, I don't like his performance the way uh, you do, but I, I don't think that point. Are we talking about Salatine? Salatine, yeah. I, I always thought he looked like a like a weird, creepy Emilio Estevez. I could Just see a little that. side note. I, I had him down as a gay Christopher Hitchens. Okay. Yeah. I got that too. But so while that's a good twist... I think it, it sort of pales in comparison to the the number of areas in which Waters of Mars is a superior story. You know, I mean, campaigning is something we couldn't even muster the strength uh, to discuss. Why? Yeah, why are we discussing it? Both Doctor and Antagonist, again, we were in ultimate agreement. And I think with the Doctor comes the whole through line of the story, because that's what these stories are really about. They're these tremendous stories where the Doctor has these very powerful uh, deep thrusting plots uh, <laughs> into the climax, thrusting climax with the doctor. And ultimately, uh, the he thrusts and climaxes harder when the waters of Mars comes out of him. It, was that weird at all? Uh, it's weird in all the best ways. Perfect. You know, I do think like looking at uh, Caves of Androzani on a, on a sliding scale uh, of, of time, especially like compared to a mediocre episode of doctor who i think it's a no-brainer i think it's uh you know directed so dynamically so great for a classic episode that it really stands out but you know at the end of the day you're you're right there's it's just so much more fun and more interesting to actually watch waters of mars and so yeah i'm willing to say that you know they're two great episodes they're two great episodes and uh, i guess i lose it's fine but no they're great episodes yay primarily for the thing you said the quietest (laughs) But no, and uh, while I do feel uh, Waters of Mars is better, and uh, it is, I mean, we just proved that I won the dilemma, um, <laughs> I do want to restate, Cater's Androzani is a really good story, and it is better than quite a few New Who stories, even with my, the things that I dislike about Cater's Androzani, and even with the degree to which I think it's overrated. Particularly the more classic Who you watch, I think the more you will appreciate Cater's Androzani for just... I think working harder to entertain you. Yeah, that's a very good point. Well, with our dilemma resolved, don't go yet. We have a bonus, another entry from Big Finish, The Seeds of War. Supplementary air supply activated. The eminence has been waiting for you. 
Doctor. Oh no. The eminence is returning. No! In this story written by Matt Finn and Nicholas Briggs, the Doctor, accompanied by Mel, arrives at a bleak future where humanity is on the brink of destruction, nearly obliterated by a seemingly unstoppable force known as the Eminence. All right, so Fenric Lamar, what do you think of the Seeds of War? So this is another story that uh, I just really loved. And uh, listening to it again, I still think it's really great, uh, especially the first half of it. The first half is really stellar. It starts to lose a little bit of uh, movement in the second half, I think. I agree. I think we probably had the exact same experience, which is that my memory of it was that it was spectacular. And then listening to it this time, I was like, oh, you know what? It's just very good. It's very good. I would still say if you haven't dipped a toe into the Eminence story yet, this is the Eminence story. Definitely check it out. And I wouldn't quite go first half, second half. I would say part one is amazing. And then I I still think uh, part four is very good as well. But I definitely think like part three and parts of part two are kind of uh, a bit slow and muddy. Yeah. Part one, almost the... Actually, the entire part of part one is basically one long action sequence that is perfect for audio. It's so great. It's all just about this collapsing tower, and it's brilliant. Yeah, and they they manage to, you know, like, with the way that they play with audio, you can really feel that Mel is five stories up looking down through a massive hole and yelling at the doctor. It's, It's fantastic stuff. I don't even know if he can hear me. Oh, no. And uh, at one point in there, there's a moment where they talk about earthquakes and uh, uh, the doctor makes this little crack. Surely an earthquake zone isn't the best place to put the world's tallest building. Tell that to the people of Los Angeles. And uh, I like that they were just shitting on us people of Los Angeles for just having earthquakes. (laughs) And I think that this joke will be very tasteless as soon as the famous uh, big one finally hits and kills all of us. Yeah, we personally will be dead. We will be dead. And this joke will be around that will just be seemingly just like, take that, you dead fucks. Because it's, <laughs> it's written from the perspective of the, someone from the future. Oh, that's a good point. He so already knows. He'll have known. <laughs> he knows when the big one's coming. And he'll have done nothing to stop it. So, <laughs> like, oh, that's a fixed point, bitches. He can save one person. But let it be me. Yeah, come on. Let it be me. Let it be the uh, Twin Dilemma Boys. No, Edward can stay behind. Let it oh, be me. Oh, what the fuck, man? He's, I said one person. He, he, Two he, is messing with the rules of he time. He gets a family and fires the Pompeii. If one person. <laughs> Bitch. I also really appreciate that this story relies very well on world building through external means. It's a lot, not a lot of it is done through expository dialogue, but say, for example... The live feed from our Hellsoft camp. The Earth Alliance ship Pequod can be seen several miles above the tower's summit, maintaining geostationary orbit. Yeah, and that creates this really cool thing where there's this ongoing sort of sub-story about there's the quote-unquote official narrative, and then there's what's actually happening regarding the eminence. And it's one of the the cooler mysteries in the story. Because, you know, according to the, the military and according to all the news reports, the humans were defeating the eminence. But then you find out what's really going on, that the eminence is actually just mysteriously receding. How did you manage to beat them? We didn't. Four months ago, the eminence armies began pulling back, retreating. We'd find ghost ships full of the bodies of slave warriors, dead, abandoned. 
They withdrew all the way. First of all, that's great. That's a really cool twist. And also it, it makes sense because like the eminence is a wonderful villain that also seems fucking indestructible. So <laughs> it's a pretty cool twist to have it start doing that. I think it literally is indestructible. Seemingly I mean, you is, can right? kill its minions, but... But then that becomes a really cool thing to play with in the story is uh, the sort of mistrust of the official narrative and all the way people in the story sort of interact with news media and stuff like that. You don't get that in a lot of uh, big finish stories. I think... Uh, what the number one selling point for me, what makes this such a great story, you know, a lot of times for Big Finish, it's the characters. And I think that honestly, the characters are not that great in this story, but it's fine because it's pulled back for really making the world building being being the focus. I agree. And I honestly think it's like two characters in particular who should be excellent and they're only okay. Yeah. You know, Barlow, the soldier who we spent a, a great deal of the story with and then Captain Trellick, another soldier we <laughs> spend a great deal of the story with. And uh, I would be hard-pressed to come up with additional adjectives to describe either of them that aren't their genders. <laughs> well, I thought it was funny that, uh, I believe it's Barlow's sister. Yes. Her name is Sistrella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it seems like they didn't bother to, to well, get past that point. And, like, the sister and father characters, I think the father's name is Helgert. Uh, I think his name is Fatherella. <laughs> I think the father character is a little bit better just because he has kind of like a, he's like a bit of an ideologue and he has a little bit of a quirky professor kind of vibe about him. But still, I mean, you're right. He's, he's more average big finish. Like the, the, we don't want to make it sound like we're shitting on this. My main, my main thing is like, if you haven't listened to Eminence, please listen to this one first. Absolutely. And I would still a hundred percent recommend this. Yeah. Cause here's another thing that's super commendable for the story overall much like the way a good new show multi-part story does, every single part of this story is like totally different from the last one. Every part, part one, two, three, four, is in a new location and has like a new problem that the Doctor and Mel are, are really uh, tackling. And that's super rare. You know, uh, we, we talked about another Eminent story in our episode 37, Scraps, uh, called Destroy the Infinite, which... Uh, if you remember the trivia from that, that was actually written before this, but this was released first. This was the first Eminent story that Big Finish actually released. And it makes for a fantastic little twist. So we learn that not only for this entire story, but for a very big chunk of his life, the Doctor has been carrying the Eminence inside of him. You see, Doctor, you know our plan because... And yeah, the story, I think it's just a really dynamic, interesting story. You know, I mean, it starts with this mega action sequence in a collapsing tower and then ends with a, a quest for a seed bank through space. <laughs> yeah, which it it seems like, uh, like in theory, you know, that would start huge and get very, very small. But it's really about this massive war that has taken over. It seems like it's like a solar system because they keep referring to it as like the, the 10 systems or whatever it is mm, they say. Yeah. So it is like a really big part of human future history. So that does lead to a couple of thoughts regarding the companions though, right? One, let's talk about Mel for a moment. The last sequence, there's a while where uh, everyone else is in suspended animation and the doctor, in order to deceive the eminence, sets up this thing where a robot is going to meet Mel and give her a cryptic clue. 
Designation C-R-T-J-C-E-0-0-6. I get it, I get it. You don't have to keep telling me over and over. And it's it's a bunch of letters that sounds like carrot juice. Mm-hmm. Great for him to keep bringing up uh, his last words. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I just wanted to remind everyone, Mel is supposed to be a genius computer programmer. <laughs> and the cipher that he leaves is just a basically like a, a children's hooked on phonics puzzle. <laughs> yeah, it frustrated me how quickly I figured it out. Yeah. And I'm like, Mel, just fucking understand what's going on. Put that photographic memory to use. I guess that doesn't really help you here with sounds. <laughs> Put that phonic Fo- memory. Phonographic. Yeah. He has a phonograph. <laughs> but no, yeah, she's supposed to be a fucking genius. Yes. And a computer programmer. Yeah. Both things that would be relevant to the situation to not give this brain dead clue. She also, if we've learned anything from her time on the show, is a bit of a numbskull. At the same time. Second bit of a companion fetching, right? Once again, Perry gets kicked out of the TARDIS. And then what do they do? They tell a story that's all about <laughs> fucking plants and seeds and the one skill she had but never used. That's a very good point because uh, this story could have happened at any point during the six doctor's life. Could have happened at any point during the doctor's life. Doesn't even need to specifically be six. But uh, yeah, why... Why? Yeah, they made sure to have her in the stories that involved skin-tight outfits, <laughs> but never botany. That was important. That was very high on the priority list. I want to bring up a moment with you. Uh, this is a, a Six Doctor moment, and I feel like lately uh, Big Finish has sort of been doing a lot of late in Six Doctor's life stories, which is fine, but they've sort of moved away from him being the egotist that he was at the, right, at the beginning, but he's got a really great egotism line. I am in my sixth incarnation, and I think you'll find I'm at my peak. <laughs> so I think it's funny that, you know, we talk a lot about him shitting on his past incarnations. He's now also shitting on everyone in the future. Yeah, every subsequent one. He's like, this is it, baby. I get all <laughs> downhill from here. <laughs> Which I'm sure this is how Colin Baker feels as well. And he even, uh, in the little uh, cryptic clue to Mel, he just put 006 at the end. Because <laughs> he considers himself like... Just a little bit above James Bond as well. I the same thing. I was like, just a little bit, yeah. If they played golf, you'd do one better. <laughs> and with our discussion concluded, it's time for some trivia. So as we mentioned earlier, this story has a direct connection to the fourth Doctor audio, Destroy the Infinite. Due to the abnormal nature of when they were recorded and released, this story can be considered both a prequel and a sequel to that story. Yeah, and it is imperative that you listen to this one first because the twists about what happens in f- in the fourth doctor story make for a really compelling mystery yeah and uh, due to some other qualities uh in destroy the infinite this story can also be considered much better uh i think so yeah destroy and, the infinite's uh, kind of uh, not great and if you're only going to listen to one just go ahead and skip destroy the infinite you really get the whole picture from listening to this one. It, it is nice that it actually, you know, because this episode sort of skips the war. You know, it's like in this weird gap in the war mm. and it picks up again later in a more big finish that I won't uh, touch on for spoiler reasons. But uh, it is all, uh, nice that the fourth doctor is literally in the war. There's like a battle. There's a battleship. I don't so, think you ever need to hear Destroy the Infinite. I think it adds <laughs> nothing, honestly. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, that, that's my opinion. The doctor tells Mel he once visited the Great Space Elevator. 
When I visited the so-called space elevator of Sumatra several lifetimes ago, for instance... Doctor, I... you were talking about Kalsos? Hmm? This is a reference to the big finished story from the Companion Chronicles, The Great Space Elevator, wherein the second Doctor and Victoria visit the device in a futuristic Sumatra. That's interesting. Uh, do they go to the moon in it? Because that's the only place that the second Doctor knows where to go. That is sort of his favorite thing. Yeah. This story references several of Melanie Bush's TV adventures, best known to most people for their general shittiness. For example, the Doctor mentions the work of agronomist Sarah Lasky, a professor from The Vervoids. Oh, good. Mel's debut story. Mel is also depicted as being on the hunt for a swimming pool, likely a reference to her inscrutable swimming pool search in Paradise Towers. Hey, that one's fantastic. <laughs> I knew you would get all defensive about that. It's still known for general shittiness to most people. Yeah, well, those people clearly are not going to be allowed into the Kangs. On the hunt for more trivia for this episode, I read an interview with Colin Baker about its recording. You might be interested to know, instead of talking about the story, it centered almost exclusively around his time on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, an occurrence I keep desperately trying to forget. <laughs> yeah, why does he want to remind people he was on that? Yeah, thanks very much, Colin Baker. Thanks for fucking talking about that instead of this story. I think it's just because it's the only thing that's keeping him relevant. Not to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to Doctor Who fans, but it's like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm literally a celebrity. Yeah, I was I'm, on the show. I was labeled a celebrity <laughs> by law. <laughs> and so ends another installment of The Twin Dilemma. This week, The Caves of Androzani, supposedly one of the all-time best stories of Doctor Who, fails to be defended by one of the all-time worst Doctor Who fans. <laughs> I disagree uh, yeah, uh, with you, almost everything you, you just said. <laughs> and uh, the waters of Mars proves itself the superior story in the realm of contamination. I like how you didn't uh, say anything about yourself. I'll just say that I'm contaminated by greatness. Hmm. Uh, if you are, it's only from when I come on you. <laughs> That's okay. I'll just edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard. Because I have been... Edward, the last word, Grove. <laughs> and I have been Fenric, just going to come on your face no matter what, Lamar. <laughs> but you know, that nickname's gotten you in a lot of trouble with the police. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Join us next week when our theme is Nosferatu. Small finish. We love dumb shit.